The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. You go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We'll pick up the pace a little bit more next week. I keep saying that week by week, but we'll do it one of these times. I'd like for us to look at 13.5, middle part of the verse, love does not seek its own. That's our text for tonight. Love does not seek its own. Um, tonight, we're going to do something a little uh, different. This, this passage, love does not seek its own, um, of course, there's, there's a sense where the, the meaning of the words are obvious, right? It's not like there's any obscure words here or, or vague meaning. It's pretty straightforward. Love, literally it says, love does not seek its own things, all right? Um, Net Bible, love is not self-serving. That's pretty decent. Um, NIV, love is not self-seeking. That's okay. ESV, love does not insist on its own way. Um, not my favorite. Uh, Christian Standard Bible, love is not selfish. Okay. You can see why it goes that way. Um, the little phrase itself is, is in, in a sense, incredibly important. It, it obviously fits into the context of the description of love. But what it has to say to us is of immense importance. Commentator Anthony Thistleton says, Love is not preoccupied with the interests of self. This conveys to our culture what the Greeks conveyed, what the Greek conveyed to first century readers, combining self-centeredness and self-interests. Right? Um, the old Princeton theologian Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, just says this. This, this brief, love is disinterested. Now, I'm going to tell you, you know, uh, you know those little uh, sticky tabs that you put when you're reading? Okay. So take a little mental sticky tab and put it on, love is disinterested, all right? And put that wherever that went in your brain, all right? Um, disinterest is, is an older word, obviously, that fit into a, uh, a theological perspective that claimed that the purest form of love is that which has zero interest in any benefit, advantage, or joy for oneself. Okay. Track with me? So dis so to say love is disinterested. So when Hodge says that, what he's what he's saying is, is that love takes no interest whatsoever in any advantage or benefit or joy for oneself. So if I do something, if I do an act of love for, let's say, for Charlie, then to say love is disinterested means that I have absolutely no self-interest whatsoever in doing good to Charlie. I'm just doing good because doing good is simply the purest form of love. All right? And we're going to revisit that. I'll tell you why shortly. So, in, in one sense, we could, we could do um, love does not seek its own things and just say, the, the, this characteristic should be obvious to us. Christian love is not selfish, right? So, I'm not going to ask for a poll, but I mean, how many of you think that selfishness is the worst thing ever. Okay. Don't raise your hand. Okay. Um, we t- teach our kids not to be selfish, right? Um, 
you know, it's funny. You watch, you watch kids, and some of them are in, incredibly um, generous, you know? Uh, you, you don't even, you know, it's like, you know, I don't even have to tell Elliot to share. He just, he just shares with his brothers. It's really, it's weird. If he weren't a twin, I'd think he was adopted. But, um, you know, Calvin, on the other hand, say, well, why don't you share the gummy worms with your brothers, and he's like, oh, Papa, I don't have enough. We have a five-pound bag. Well, I know, but I'll run out pretty soon. Uh, you know, so, so to go, you know, to kind of just say, yeah, just rail on selfishness. Love is not selfish, right? You, could you come up with texts that talk about love not being selfish? And the answer is, well, of course, you know, the apostle says, let, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own. New American Standard puts in good, which is just terrible, but that of his neighbor. So don't seek, his, seek your own, but seek that of your neighbor. Um, very same passage. We've already seen this. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God. And just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many so that they may be saved. And, of course, we can think of, um, you know, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. And, you know, you, you don't please yourself. Not even Christ came to please himself, but to please your neighbor, right? So you have these texts all over the place. You're to put the interests of others above your own interests, Philippians 2, uh, 3 and 4. Why? Because you're to have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? So, so you can find all kinds of supporting texts that, that teach us that Christian love is not selfish. Lutheran commentator Linsky says, Cure selfishness and you plant the Garden of Eden. Don't you like that? It's sort of true, right? Cure selfishness and you plant the Garden of Eden. And, and, and certainly, certainly, this, uh, this principle of Christian love is a much-needed reminder in, uh, in a culture like ours, which is self-centered, self-serving, and self-exalting. By the way, you understand that that's not unique to American culture. That's a reflection of fallen human nature that permeates every culture. There are just times, though, where culture seems to celebrate it more. Right? It's always there. Self-serving, self-seeking, self-exalting. It's always there. But sometimes people just get happy about it, and we're certainly in that time. Now, um, what would be easy here would be to uh, sort of go on a, like a tirade on anti-selfishness. Okay. But that'd be too easy. Okay. I don't have to tell you Love is not selfish. I, I, I would rather take a little bit of time and go down a rabbit trail with you. Okay? Because there is, so put your pew seatbelt on, cinch it up, all right? There is a legitimate biblical self-interest which is based on a biblical self-love. I'll say it again just to make sure you're duly irritated. There is a biblical self-interest which is based on a biblical self-love. So, 
what I want to do tonight is not just rail against selfishness and then have everybody leave going, ah, I'm so selfish, you know, I'm sorry. Sorry, 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 I'm so selfish. It's too easy. What I would like to do is bring up something that should make us think a little bit because my conviction is that our thinking when it comes to love is not selfish ends up being actually too shallow. All right? Too shallow. So we're going to do... We're going to do Bible theology and historical theology tonight, all right? Is that okay with you? If it's not, all I can say is that um, this is what is interesting to me, and since I'm going to talk about self-interest, this is what we're going to do, all right? (laughs) <laughs> All right, so let me, let, me just, let me just paint this a little bit for you. So for some of you, th- this may be absolutely painfully boring, but to me, this is fascinating. So uh, my, my favorite theologian of all time, just take a guess, Jonathan Edwards, right? Jonathan Edwards, my favorite. And um, Edwards had, had two primary disciples, Joseph Bellamy and Samuel Hopkins, all right? Anybody ever heard of Joseph Bellamy? How about Samuel Hopkins? Now, some of you should have heard of Samuel Hopkins because Samuel Hopkins actually was uh, a, a very significant figure in, uh, in the anti-slavery uh, movement, all right? So you had Bellamy and you had Hopkins, and Bellamy and Hopkins were the two major architects, theological architects of what was called, are you ready for this, disinterested benevolence. Okay? Now, by the way, this is far more relevant to you than you're thinking right now. I promise. This has relevance for what you do at refuge. This has relevance for what you do in prison. This has relevance for what life choices does. This has relevance for how you treat your neighbor, okay? So the relevance is, is, is there. Whether I can bring it out or not will be, uh, remains to be seen. So Bellamy and Hopkins, um, they, um, they construct this view called disinterested benevolence. I'll, I'll tell you what that is in a second, although you might be able to conjecture what it is. Now, their view of disinterested benevolence, I argue, is a profound departure from Jonathan Edwards. So the disciples left the teacher. Now, if you want to read my reasoning, I have a 30-page paper that you could read on disinterested benevolence and its development with Bellamy and Hopkins, and just send me an email. I'll be happy to send it to you. And if anybody actually asks for it, I will just die of happiness. All right. So so we're going to do a little excursion on being disinterested. All right? And some of you are like, you don't need to do an excursion. I'm already disinterested because what you're talking about has no interest to me. So, let's uh, number one, notice putting the description, disinterested benevolence, into its biblical theological context, all right? So, here's, here's, here's why we're talking about this when we read in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love does not seek its own. So, if love does not seek its own things, then what does that, what does that look like? So you say, well, it obviously looks like don't be selfish. But I want to tell you that don't be selfish needs to be translated. Every single person in this room has intense self-interest. Every single one of us. 
if you ate today, you have self-interest. If you trusted Jesus and one of your reasons is you don't want to go to hell, you have self-interest, all right? So just to say, well, don't be selfish. What I'm telling you is that's not enough at this point. That's not enough. And so there can be a really just overly simplistic idea. You know, um, if, if, if you never read Augustine, you might think that the biggest sin in the garden wasn't pride. That's what Augustine said. But it was selfishness, and selfishness is just bad, bad, bad. So the question then becomes, well, what does the Bible teach about this? Does the Bible actually, does the Bible actually teach us that we should be motivated by disinterest? So remember what disinterest is. So the idea is, is that a pure act of love has absolutely zero self-interest in it for me in terms of advantage, benefit, joy, whatever. That's, you, you add that in, you ruin the act. Okay. So the Bible actually tell me, because this is the, this is the implication, if, if disinterested benevolence is true, then the Bible would say that it's just simply wrong for you to pursue your own happiness. Okay. So I wonder if we were to take a quiz right now, don't answer out loud because one simple question. The Bible teaches I should Pursue my happiness. True or false? Okay. A lot of people go, false. Pursue your own happiness, you're selfish. Selfishness is awful. Disinterested benevolence, that's the virtue. All right? Now, you can probably already tell by my tone that I don't think that's true. Okay, so Samuel Hopkins. This is, this is from one of his classic works. He says, holy love, right? So pure love, holy love, has not regard to self as self. So you like, like remove yourself from the equation. So Hopkins said, but is a regard to the greatest general good and interest the glory of God and the highest glory of his kingdom and the greatest good of the creation. So far as man exercises holy love, he has no other interest but this, as all is devoted to this and given up for the sake of it. And in this sense, all his love is disinterested as it seeks not any self-interest, but the contrary. You understand the, the quote, right? So... You take yourself out of the equation. You have no interest whatsoever. All you care about, all you care about, all you care about is the glory of God and the greater good. Okay. By the way, let me just tell you where the evangelism of the disinterested benevolence of Bellamy and Hopkins led. It led to this. How do you know you have saving faith? I'm totally willing to be damned forever if that would bring God the most glory. How's that sound? By the way, just for those of you who are history buffs, in the Second Great Awakening, this was one of the primary emphases of people like Azahel Nettleton and others. Disinterested benevolence, a willingness to be damned for the glory of God. You must be saved. So let me, just, let me just clarify something here, and that is um, I, under no circumstances, want to endure the wrath of God forever. And I have an intense self-interest 
to avoid eternal misery. Okay? All right. So anyway, so this is, this is the idea. So 1 Corinthians 13, 5, according to these guys, would mean love is, <laughs> so Hodge says, love is disinterested. Well, if that's true, so let me pose it this way. If that's true, then we have an incredible problem understanding the love of God and the love of Christ and what Paul has already said, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 13. So um, you, you, can, you can vote on this. Would you say that God is the most loving being in the entire universe? Yes. Would you say, be careful, God is the most self-seeking being in all of the universe? Absolutely. Yeah. What is, what is supreme in God's affections and the ultimate priority in everything that he does? His glory his glory, not yours, okay? His glory. So, you understand, so God is the most loving being in all of the universe, and he is also the most deeply self-interested being in the whole universe. Well, can I show you that in the Bible? And the answer is, of course I can. These texts are... These texts should be second nature to you by now, right? Isaiah 48, 8 through 11. What does God say? For my sake, I will act. For the sake of my name, I will act. It's not for you that I do what I do, it's for me. Okay. When God gives the promise of the new covenant, Ezekiel 36, what are some things he promises in the new covenant? Take out the heart of stone, put in its place a heart of flesh, put a new spirit within you, put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my ways. You beneficiary of the new covenant? I am a blissed out beneficiary of the new covenant. It's my salvation. And yet God says right there in Ezekiel 36, 25, I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for my name's sake. Which is just another way of God saying, I'm doing it for my glory right? Um, so you remember in, uh, in Numbers 14, there at the incident at Kadesh Barnea, uh, you had the evil report of unbelief, right? The 10 spies, we can't go in, can't take the land, Joshua and Caleb, contrary opinion uh, based on faith. And of course, who do the people side with? The majority report, okay? which was the report of unbelief. And Remember what happened, so God says, uh, you know what, let's, um, let's uh, slice them and dice them all right here on the spot, leave them for dead, and uh, Moses, I'll start over with you. And Moses says, it is about time, these people have been driving me crazy, right? No, Moses, Moses says, you can't do that, because... News will get back to Egypt. Your reputation will be tarnished. And in Numbers 14, 21, we have an oath by God. He says, Surely, as I live, declares the Lord, the whole earth is going to be filled with my glory. 
That's God's preeminent purpose in everything that he does. In fact, even showing mercy to recalcitrant, rebellious Israelites, it is a demonstration of his glory. And so why does God save rascals like us who are dead in trespasses and sins and walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of now works in the son's disobedience, Right, so why does God save us? Why, why after a declaration of our spiritual bondage and depravity in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, why, why are the next two words in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, but God being rich in mercy, in love with which he loved us, caused us to be made alive with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. Why? So that, here's the purpose, this is why God does it. This is why God takes people that are dead in trespasses and sins and are walking in rebellion according to the devil himself. This is why God intervenes and saves. This is why there's a but God. So that in the coming ages the surpassing glory of God's grace would be put on display. Why did God save you? Why did God save me? It's not because his life was incomplete without you. It's because he wants to manifest his glory. So this this is this is the this is the consistent theme. And so are you um <laughs> well let's see. Um so you are called out of darkness into God's marvelous light, first Peter two nine. Why? So that you may declare the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are a people. You're people of God. God saved you for his glory. God saved you for his praise. God saved you in order to display the, the good pleasure of his will. This is why God does what he does. So God seeks his glory above all things. He loves his glory above all things. So what about, what about doesn't love does not seek its own apply to God? Shall we conclude that somehow God is unloving because he saved us for himself? Shall we conclude that God is unloving because he made us a people for his own praise? The thought's ludicrous, isn't it? I mean, here's, here's, this, this isn't um, germane to the whole thing, but you understand that the greatest assurance that you have that God is for you is that he is first and foremost for himself. That's what gives the guarantee of grace to us. So let's just, let's just pretend for a minute that God, were, and I just use Arnie, okay? So God would say, Arnie, I love you more than anything in the whole world. I put all of my love, all of my affection on you. You're my highest priority. Okay. Two, two things. One, it would make God an idolater. Three things. It would make God not overly bright. And it would set God up for colossal disappointment. And our good would not be secured. Because as long as we're the priority, then at some point, 
God's commitment is contingent on the priority. If God's commitment is contingent on the priority and the priority is his glory, then his commitment to you is without wavering. Because he's committed preeminently to himself, he can be committed to you without it depending on you. That's that's what we're saying. God's commitment to you is not based on you. It's based on him because it's his glory that's more important than you. Boy, you talk about just how in the world do you know you're going to make it all the way to the end? How do you know he's going to hold you fast? And the answer is he's committed to his own glory. So disinterested benevolence doesn't work, let's just put it this way, with God. Okay? Well, what about Jesus? Well... Just two two texts. Isaiah 53, suffering servant, right? If disinterested benevolence is true, then what does Jesus' act of sacrifice for his people look like? No interest for Jesus. No benefit, no joy, no satisfaction. Just, I do what I do because it's the right thing to do. Is that how the Bible presents Jesus' motivation in doing what he does? Disinterested benevolence. The answer is no. So Isaiah 53, 11, he shall look upon the anguish of his soul. And in Isaiah 53, what is the anguish of his soul? It is him pouring his soul out to death on our behalf so that through the knowledge of the righteous one, the many will be justified. Okay, that's, He will look on the anguish of his soul. You know the rest? And be satisfied. That is not disinterested benevolence. That is intense self-interest. I'm going to do the greatest act of sacrifice, the greatest act of love ever, and as I look at what I do, it satisfies my heart. Well, the writer to the Hebrews said exactly the same thing. He just used different words. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So you know what that means is, so think of our Lord Jesus in his incarnation, and he, he looks at his suffering and his death. What's, what's the worst Thing to Jesus about what he is about to experience. Okay. Separation from God. This is, this, is the whole, this is the whole pleading in Gethsemane. He's about to drink the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath is the wrath of Almighty God that he's going to drink In our stead, his own holy soul recoils from the very idea of suffering the wrath of God in our stead, being separated on Golgotha, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was nothing more, there was nothing more terrifying to the Son. Nothing Nothing more brutal, nothing more nor more soul wrenching than the idea of bearing the wrath of his father in our stead. That's what he did for you. Disinterested benevolence says, I do the most loving thing for the greater good, for the glory of God, 
and I take no interest whatsoever in it. Writer to the Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. In other words, Jesus suffers hell on Golgotha because he knew there was joy on the other side. Joy of fulfilling the Father's plan, joy of doing the Father's will, joy of purchasing a people for himself for his eternal praise, joy in reconciling sinners to God, joy in, in, in consummating a salvation which will be the foundation of a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells forever. So Jesus looks beyond that, the anguish of Calvary, to the joy of what that anguish is going to accomplish and it helps motivate him. So no disinterested benevolence in the Son of God. So Jesus comes into this world, and of course he can say, no greater love, there's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Is that what Jesus does for us? Lays down his life for his friends. John's Gospel says, having loved them to the uttermost, to the end, and yet that idea of Jesus, Jesus could not have loved us more or ever love us more than he already does. Do you understand that? Jesus Jesus loves you with the utmost maximum capacity, and I would remind you he's God, So Jesus loves us. There's no way that he could have a greater love for us. And yet, what he does, he does because he says, I delight to do thy will, O God. It's magnificent. His motivation in laying down his life, his motivation in the greatest act of love of all time was the joy that was set before him and the satisfaction of his own soul that he would experience as a result of his accomplishment of our redemption. Now, let me just make a point of application that should be very obvious to all of us, and that is the idea of seeking joy doesn't doesn't mean taking the easy road. We're not talking about some sort of fleeting sentimental happiness. For Jesus, it was the agony of Gethsemane and the abandonment of Golgotha that held the high road of joy and satisfaction for the Son of God. The pathway of delight and joy is not... So, how does disinterested, benevolent stack up when we think of God as the most loving being? He is love, and yet he does what he does for himself. So, you go, okay, well, it doesn't apply to God. Well, it doesn't apply to Jesus either. Well, what about us? Well, here's, this, you've heard this before. The Bible orders us to be happy and appeals to our desires for happiness. So the first thing I would say when it comes to, well, what love, love does not seek its own. What that must mean is love is disinterested. I would say that's not true because it's not true in God. It's not true in the Son. And it's not true in the way that the Bible motivates us. I started reading the Bible when I was 13 years old. I'm a little past that now. I'm coming up on uh, 52, which still, just to remind some of you, is incredibly young, right? Some of you will testify, amen, 52, man. I'd give my right eyeball to be 52 again, right? But you know what that means? It means I've been reading my Bible for 
almost 40 years, 39 years, I've never seen anywhere in the Bible that says I should be willing to be damned in order to be saved. Can you think of any place? I can't. On the contrary, the Bible tells me that, um, first of all, love cannot be disinterested. You know why? Because Paul describes acts of disinterest in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. You remember that part? If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, do not have love, become a noisy gong, clanging symbol. I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith, so as to move mountains, do not have love, I'm nothing. And notice this. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, give, surrender my body to be burned. We talked about that. But don't have love, it profits me nothing. So do you understand that 1 Corinthians 13, 3 actually necessitates against a view of disinterested benevolence. Does that make sense to you? What is disinterested benevolence? Not looking for any profit or benefit or advantage, but doing what I'm doing because it's the right thing to do, like giving all of my possessions to the poor. Paul says you can do that in a way that it profits you nothing. So I'm automatically suspicious of disinterested benevolence from the beginning. And I also then take into account a bunch of other things in the Bible, like the Bible tells me to... uh, Does the Bible ever tell me I should seek joy? Does the Bible ever tell me I should seek everlasting happiness? What do you think? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. by the way, <laughs> I had a funny thought. If, let's say you took the theme of joy out of the Psalms. There, you just shrunk them in half. Right? <laughs> you now have like 60 Psalms. <laughs> right? 90 of them are just gone, right? And uh, so you just shrunk the whole Psalter. Um, delight yourself in the Lord. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. What's the desire of my heart? Well, if he wants to send me to hell, I'm happy to go. Well, that doesn't seem to make too much sense there, does it? Delight yourself in the Lord, right? Make the Lord your supreme delight. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. What do the desires of your heart look like when God is your delight? Right? I want to see God glorified. I want to see God. I want to see good done to other people. And you know what? What what is not missing is I want to have a satisfied, contented heart. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, oh God. Some of you know what it's like maybe you, you hike or you hunt or but you're up in alt, high altitude and uh, I'm sure some of you have had this experience and you start to get uh, thirsty and then you didn't bring enough water with you and all of a sudden guess all what you're thinking about nothing else water this happened with um uh, Anna Lynn and me um, up in the Jacksons a long time ago. Anna Lynn was a little girl. And I shot a deer. And I won't go into the detail, but hunting with Matt Berlich is an adventure. You hunt with an OBGYN, it's amazing what happens. And um, uh, we were. We were a good three or four miles from, we'd been hunting all day. We were a good three or four miles from the vehicle, and the vehicle was a good ten miles from our base camp. And Matt started to have an allergic reaction. And Matt, you may not know this, but 
He's half mountain goat. Okay. It's true, right, Suzanne? And so we, we quartered the deer, stuck it in Matt's aluminum frame backpack, and Matt is having like anaphylactic shock or something. He's having a hard time breathing. Had to put a little light on his, on his hat. And he told Anna Lynn and me to pack up everything else and, and get back to the vehicle. He thought he had an EpiPen in the vehicle. He didn't, by the way. It was all the way back in the motorhome. And um, Anna Lynn and I pack everything up. And we are going as fast as we can. And then we realize we don't have any water. And so we're trying to make a decision. Do we stop and pump some and filter it to drink it, or do we just keep going? It's dark. It's cold. Matt's dying. You know what we decided to do? Stop and get water. You know why? When you are really thirsty, and you're getting dehydrated, that's the only thing you think about. Matt lived, okay? And, um, you know, just just to let you know the rest of the story, so we get to the the, uh, truck, and Matt's eyes by this time are shut, okay? Looks like Mr. Magoo. And he can barely breathe, and we're... We're on a switchback mining road. I said, Matt, you want me to drive? He's like, no, it's okay. I'm fine. And, uh, <laughs> and he got us home. He got us back. Uh, although Anna Lynn and I white-knuckled it and prayed the whole way down the mountain. But, you know, there's a, there's a sense where once you start to get thirsty, I mean really thirsty, you don't think about anything else. You come into this world with a soul thirst. And we're so foolish that we think that we can satisfy our thirst with other things. But God's wired us so that soul thirst is satisfied with one thing and one thing only. Psalm 63, my soul thirsts for the living God. The way the psalmist describes himself in Psalm 63 is that he's parched. He's in the wilderness and his soul thirsts for God. So if God made us to thirst for him, and he alone satisfies the soul thirst, disinterested benevolence is not true. By the way, God doesn't say to us something like this, oh, hey, you're willing to be damned. That's awesome. No. God, I need you. I can't live without you. You are the deepest satisfaction of my soul. I will die without you. There is no happiness without you. There is no joy without you. There is no life without you. And God says, thirsty soul, I'm living water. Stick your face down in the fountain and drink and drink and drink and drink. And that's what glorifies God. So we could belabor this, right? Um, but here's, here's the important part. Loving acts are legitimately motivated by happiness, joy, and reward. You, you start to see it. So loving acts are motivated by happiness, joy, and reward. How do I know that? Well, because we have this, uh, it's called a dominical saying. It's a saying of Jesus. It's not in the Gospels, but it's in Acts twenty thirty five. Did not our Lord Jesus, as the Apostle Paul say, it is more blessed to give than to receive? 
more blessed. What's that? Oh, don't be afraid to say it. Be happy. There is more happiness in giving than in receiving. And so then the next verse, of course, Jesus says, and since I don't want you to be happy, just receive. (laughs) I hope you know your Bible better than that, all right? That's not what it says. It's more blessed to be to give than to receive. What kind of what kind of giver does God love? It's a cheerful giver. Just someone's just happy to give. God doesn't say, "Wait, wait, don't be happy. You're going to ruin the act." So recently, um, somebody came up and just did a really, really super kind thing uh, for for Ariel and me. Just blessed us. It was it was such a joy, but could you imagine just going, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, and then and then the person goes, I didn't take any pleasure in it. <laughs> just did it. The pure act of love, and I had no joy in it. How would that make you feel? Be like, thank you, <laughs> right? No, so so I, I've used this illustration before. So I wish uh, I wish I wish uh, Gene Thompson was here because you know pastors go to the hospital to see people, and it's not always like the thing that you want to just. It's not like oh, you know what. I'm so glad they're in the hospital because I don't have anything else to do. Right? Nobody says that. Right? So there's, so there's this sense of, okay, there's a sense of responsibility. Right? Go to the hospital. And this happens time and time and time again. You go and you see that person and... You're getting ready to leave and you say, um, I'm really glad that I was here. Thank you so much for coming to see me. You know, you know what? It really was my pleasure. The blessing was all mine. I've never had anybody say, you selfish pig. <laughs> How dare you? I'm in the hospital. You shouldn't take any joy from visiting me. You've done your duty. And so just some disinterested visit is what I need. <laughs> you know, I go, you know, and so, you know, you leave, and Jean's such a great example because she's such a wonderful, delightful person, and your, your heart's just full when you're leaving, and you're just like, I'm so happy that I went to see her. I didn't ruin anything. Showing where there's real value. That's what I'm doing. So, the Bible appeals to our desires for happiness, and by the way, our aversion to misery, right? And so, uh, I I put out a a whole list of Jonathan Edwards' quotes. You should read all of them. I don't have time to. And believe me, there's nothing. The the, the thing I like next to talking about the Bible is reading Jonathan Edwards' quotes, but we're going to skip that. Why heaven and not hell? What's the motivation? A version of misery is one of them. Desire for joy is another. Um, Why be forgiven? Why worry about the burden of sin? How blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are not imputed to him. Psalm 32. How blessed is he whose sins are forgiven. Have you ever had that sense of God's forgiveness of you? You just have a joy in your heart? God doesn't say, stop that. That's self-interest. 
Believe me, the forgiveness of sins is deeply self-interested. I want the burden off of my back. I want to I want to feel free. Okay. Think about worship. What would what would the Psalms be as they dealt with worship if joy as a motivation was sucked right out of it? Right? Isn't there a motivation of just of of entering into God's presence to worship? And to express joy. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Okay. Why believe? He who believes in me. What is it like? I am the true bread come down out of heaven. He who believes in me will never hunger again. Is there any self-interest in that? You better believe it. Why obey? Now, I want to tell you that there is a sense in which a motivation for obedience is this. God said so. Totally legitimate. I mean, parents, we kind of overdo this a little bit, but why? Because I said so. And God has established the laws of his universe which make me the authority, so do it. Right? You could do that, totally legitimate, but guess one of the... Major motivations in just obeying the law of the Lord. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked and so forth, but does what? Walks in the way of the the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law meditates day and night. He's the one that's going to be like a tree. In other words, hey, obedience is better than disobedience. It's more satisfying than disobedience. Why pray that your joy may be full? Why read your Bible? Your words were found and I did eat them and they became the joy and delight of my heart. So Edward says, that a man should love his own happiness is necessary to his nature as a faculty of his will is. And it's impossible that it should be destroyed in any other way than by destroying his being. In other words, you can't get rid of your desire to be happy only by getting rid of yourself. The saints love their own happiness. Yea, those that are perfect in holiness. The saints and the angels in heaven love their own happiness. Otherwise, their happiness, which God has given to them, would be no happiness to them. For that which anyone does not love, he cannot enjoy no happiness in it. You say, well, what about self-denial? Doesn't the Bible say you've got to deny yourself? And the answer is absolutely the Bible says you've got to deny yourself. But do you understand that there's not a single call to self-denial in the Bible that is disinterested? Why? Because self-denial is not an end in itself. What's the ultimate goal in self-denial? the ultimate goal in self-denial. If anyone would come after me, well, what is it to come after him? Why go after him? Because he's life. So whoever would, would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, follow me, If you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. Oh, see, disinterest. Wait. But he who loses his life for my sake shall find it. So what that means is that there is a short-sighted, temporary self-interest that doesn't pay nearly as well as the long view. 
Does that make sense? If I really want life, self-denial is the means to that. It's not an end in itself. Every once in a while, you'll hear some monk, for instance, say something like, um, you know, I mean, here they are. They live this life of self-denial. And they, well, what if, what if all of this is not true? Well, I still would have lived um, a virtuous life of self-denial. I think that well, here's what Paul would say. No, you're actually an idiot. Okay. <laughs> all right. So, by the way, did Moses practice self-denial? Uh, Hebrews 11, 24 to 26. Did Moses practice self-denial? Absolutely. He chose suffering with the people of God. Why did he do that? Because he didn't care whether he went to heaven or hell. No. For he looked to the greater reward. Was there reward in being raised in Pharaoh's house? Absolutely. Was there greater reward in suffering reproach for Christ? He chose the greater reward. Okay. So, so, I think that we've made the point, right? So C.S. Lewis, I love this, he says, It would be a bold and silly creature that came before its creator with the boast, I'm no beggar, I love you disinterestedly. <laughs> So that, by the way, that's not how you, that's not how you come to God. So if love does not seek its own, and yet God seeks his own glory and his love, and Christ sought his own joy and performed the greatest act of love, then it does not stand to reason that Paul's promoting a love that is disinterested towards either God or man, right? And so when I come to God, I don't come to God and say, I come to you disinterestedly. I say, I come to you and you are everything I need. That is intense self-interest. I come to you because you're everything I truly want. So when Paul says love does not seek its own, certainly saying love is not selfish, but what, what it means is not that we're disinterested in our own joy or happiness or spiritual advantage, but rather we are not to seek our own private good, fulfill our own private appetites, our own private desires to the exclusion of others or at the expense of others. A true Christian seeks happiness and joy in the joy of others. True Christian love finds its greatest joy in giving, serving, sacrificing, and helping. And so the love of God has so gripped us that the concerns of others are now our concern And looking out for those concerns is what delights our hearts. So love is costly. It takes sacrifice and self-denial, but it's never disinterested benevolence. True love is always motivated by seeking joy in the joy of others. I have a lengthy uh, Edwards quote. They're back on the thing. And that's what the Father did for us, right? So how does the Father seek his glory? By doing us good. How does the Son seek the greatest joy and satisfaction by laying down his life for us. So Edward says, in some sense, the most benevolent, generous person in the world seeks his own happiness and doing good to others because he places his happiness in their good. So, let me just wrap this up. The old timers, not, not people of the 20th or 21st century, the old-timers, guys like Edwards and, 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 and Back, would have said, you have to understand there's three different kinds of self-love. Okay. There's what they would have called lawful self-love. Okay. This is the kind of self-love that drives you to eat three meals a day. Okay. No man, says Paul, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and takes care of it. By the way, that's Paul's example of what we would call lawful self-love. If you took a shower this morning, brushed your teeth, 
ate breakfast, and maybe exercised. It's because you have a lawful sense of love to yourself. If you didn't brush your teeth, didn't take a shower, and ate Twinkies all day, then you might actually be a self-loathing human being. Then they say there was a holy self-love. The holy self-love is the self-love that finds its satisfaction and joy in God himself. That's the holy self-love. That's what we've been talking about. And then, of course, there is a sinful self-love. The kind of self-love that excludes everybody else, that uses people as stepping stones. And so Edward says, if you are selfish and make yourself and your own private interest your idol, God will leave you to yourself and let you promote your own interest as well as you can. But if you do not seek your own, but the things of Jesus Christ, the things of others, God will make your interest and happiness his charge. See what he's saying? If you give yourself to the glory of God and the good of others, God will take it upon himself to make sure that you're happy. He says, he is infinitely more able to provide for it and promote it than you are. I mean, how many of you have lived life trying to seek your own happiness and realize that you've been a dismal failure? And instead of being happy, you've made yourself miserable. God's able to provide for it better than you are. So that not to seek your own, that is not to seek your own private worldly interest, is the best way of seeking your own in another sense. It is the most direct course you can take to obtain the truest happiness. And so I just close with this. C.S. Lewis once said, the problem with us is not that our desires are too strong, but they're too weak. And if we really had stronger desires for happiness, we would truly seek God more and serve others better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, your people's patience. And I pray that this would be a blessing to them tonight. And we just thank you for your love for us. And Father, we thank you most of all for your supreme love for yourself and for your own glory. It is the very foundation of our life and the life to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.